0: Chapter 8 The Sacrament of Anaphora Lord, it is good that we are here. Matthew seventeen four. Let us stand aright, let us stand with fear, let us attend, that we may offer the holy oblation in peace. When, after the confession of faith, we hear this summons, something happens in the liturgy that is difficult to express in words, occurring only from within, perceptible only spiritually, a passing over into another level. Something has been completed, and now something is obviously beginning. What? The generally accepted answer to this question goes something like this. We now begin the Eucharistic Canon, that chief part of the liturgy during which the sacrament i.e., the change or the transubstantiation of the Eucharistic gifts of bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ is accomplished. But, although formally correct, this very answer gives rise to further questions, demands refinement, for, as I shall try to demonstrate, one can understand it in different ways, and on these various understandings depends, in turn, one's entire conception of the liturgy, of its place not only in our life, and not only even in the life of the Church, but in the mystery of the salvation of the world, as the return and the ascent of the creation to the Creator. So, first of all, what do we mean by defining this part of the liturgy as the chief part, or, more precisely, what can and what must we mean? This word presupposes a certain correlation— a certain link between the chief and the non-chief, and outside of this link it makes no sense. But scholastic school theology, from whose example this definition arose and became generally accepted, and as it were self-evident, was itself never really occupied and is not concerned with any other part of the liturgy. On the contrary, at first in the West and then by imitation also in the East, it was precisely scholastic theology that reduced the entire sacrament of the Eucharist to one of its parts, the Eucharistic canon, and, as if that were not enough, to one single moment within it, the transubstantiation. And it is precisely because of this reduction that all the remaining parts of the liturgy which we have been discussing in the preceding chapters prove to be, in relation to this no longer chief, but one and only part, of a different nature and therefore unnecessary for the theological definition and comprehension of the sacrament of the Eucharist. Finally, it is precisely their superfluity for theology that has destined them only for, on the one hand, the liturgists and rubricists, and, on the other, religious feeling and the unrestrained efforts peculiar to it to find everywhere in worship illustrative symbolism, which usually has no relation whatsoever to the sacrament. To anyone who has paid the slightest attention to the preceding chapters, it should be clear that if such is the meaning of the word chief in this definition of what is, nevertheless in fact the chief part of the liturgy, the elucidation of which we are now approaching, then I categorically reject this meaning. I reject it because in it I see the most glaring example and evidence not only of the one-sidedness or insufficiency, but, speaking to the point, the depravity of our stillborn Western school theology, a depravity that nowhere reveals itself so obviously as in its approach to the Holy of Holies of the Church, the Eucharist and the Sacraments. Therefore it was not to sound more solemn, but perfectly, consciously, and responsibly that I have entitled each of the chapters devoted to the first parts of the liturgy, entrance and assembly, reading and proclamation of the word of God, offering, kiss of peace, and confession of faith, with the word sacrament. For I see the entire task at hand in demonstrating as fully as possible that the divine liturgy is a single, though also multifaceted, sacred rite. A single sacrament in which all its parts, their entire sequence and structure, their coordination with each other, the necessity of each for all and all for each, manifest to us the inexhaustible, eternal, universal, and truly divine meaning of what has been and what is being accomplished. Such, in any case, is the tradition of the church such is her living experience, in which the sacrament of the Eucharist is inseparable from the divine liturgy. For its setting, its entire sequence, order, and structure consist in manifesting to us the meaning and the content of the sacrament in bringing us into it, in converting us into its participants and communicants. Meanwhile, it is precisely this unity, This integrity of the Eucharist, the indissoluble link of the sacrament with the liturgy that school theology destroys through its arbitrary isolation of one moment, act or formula, in the liturgy and the identification of it alone with the sacrament. We are speaking here not of discrepancies in abstract definitions, not of theological niceties, but of something very profound and essential of how and where to seek the answer to the question, What is accomplished in the Eucharist? If for the Church not only the answer to this question, but also the question itself, i.e. its correct context, is rooted in the liturgy, it is because for her the Eucharist is the crowning and fulfillment of the liturgy, just as the liturgy is the crowning and fulfillment of the entire faith, the entire life, and the entire experience of the Church. School theology, however, does not inquire of the liturgy about the meaning of the sacrament. Its fallaciousness, its tragedy lies in this, that it creates, in fact, a substitute for the question itself. It replaces it with another question, rooted not in the experience of the Church, but in the seeking of this age. In the questions, categories of thought, one can almost say in the curiosity of a fallen reason, which has not been reborn and enlightened by faith. Thus, having created its own particular, a priori and self-sufficient definition of the sacrament, it directs and attaches to it the questions and problematics that in reality should be referred to the experience of the Church and evaluated in the light of that experience. 2. Over the course of the centuries, this Problematics has come to be reduced to two questions, when and how. When, in other words, at what moment are the bread and wine transformed into the body and blood of Christ? How, in other words, what is the causality by which this is accomplished? Literally hundreds of books have been written in answer to these questions, and even to this day they constitute the subject of intense disputes between Catholics and Protestants, between East and West. But one need only to attempt to refer all these conjectures and theories to the immediate experience of the liturgy, to that service that is performed in the Church, and it becomes obvious to what degree these explanations turn out to be external to this experience, falling outside it and thus not only not really explaining anything, but, in the end, simply unnecessary. What, in fact, does the distinction of essence and accidents, which goes back to Aristotle and which the scholastics made use of to answer the question of how the transubstantiation of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ is accomplished, mean, not philosophically, not abstractly, but really, for our faith, our communion in the divine, our spiritual life, our salvation? Does transubstantiation consist according to the experience, in the change of the substance, that is, essence, of the bread into the essence of the body of Christ, while the accidents of the body remain the accidents of the bread? To faith, which confesses every Sunday, in the fear of God and with love, that this is truly thine own most pure body, this is truly thine own precious blood, this explanation is unnecessary, and for the mind itself it remains an equally incomprehensible violence to those very laws on whose foundations the explanation is supposedly constructed. It is the same with the question when, that is, at what moment, by the force of what causality, is the transubstantiation accomplished? The Western scholastics answer as at the moment when the priest pronounces the words of institution, "'This is my body, this is my blood,' words that thus constitute the consecratory formula, the formal, necessary, and sufficient cause of the transubstantiation. In rejecting, and rightly, as we shall see later, this Latin doctrine, orthodox theology in turn affirms that the transformation is accomplished not through the words of institution but through the epiclesis, the prayer of the invocation of the Holy Spirit, which, in our order of the liturgy, immediately follows these words. But since it is in fact constrained by the same method and the same problematics, this theology does not reveal what ultimately is the meaning and importance of this dispute. One consecratory formula is replaced with another. One moment is replaced by another moment. But without disclosing the very essence of the epiclesis, its true significance in the liturgy the point of all that has been said and i shall emphasize this over and over is not that having become convinced of the uselessness or the impossibility of theological comprehension we should simply dismiss these questions and as a result explain the eucharist with that hackneyed but fundamentally blasphemous formula it is impossible to understand it is only necessary to believe i believe and i confess that for the church for the world For mankind there is no more important, more urgent question than what is accomplished in the Eucharist. In reality this question is most natural to faith, which lives by the thirst for entry into the wisdom of truth, by the thirst for the logical, i.e. reasonable service of God that manifests and is rooted in the divine wisdom. It is truly the question of the ultimate meaning and purpose of all that is real, of the sacramental ascent to where God will be all in all, and thus it is the question that, through faith, was constantly radiating as a mysterious burning in the hearts of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. But that is exactly why it is so important to liberate this urgent question, to cleanse it of everything that obscures, diminishes and distorts it. And this means, first of all, those questions and answers whose depravity lies in the fact that instead of explaining the earthly through the heavenly, they reduce the heavenly and the otherworldly to the earthly, to their own human, only human, impoverished and feeble categories. Indeed, with the summons, let us stand aright, we actually do enter into the chief part of the divine liturgy, but it is chief in relation to its other parts— and not in isolation and separation from them. It is chief because in it the entire liturgy finds its fulfillment, everything that it witnesses to, that it manifests, to which it leads and ascends. It begins that sacrament of anaphora that would be impossible without the sacrament of the gathering, the sacrament of the offering, and the sacrament of unity, but in which and especially because it is the fulfillment of the entire liturgy, we are given the understanding of the sacrament that surpasses all comprehension, but nevertheless manifests all and explains all. It is precisely this relation, the wholeness and unity of the Eucharistic celebration that we are reminded of, that we turn our spiritual attention to when the deacon summons us to stand aright, to stand straight, or even to be good. 3. Right, well, good. Such words like all words, like following human language itself, have been affected, watered down, weakened. Good, for example, has come to mean more or less anything you like, pleasing to us, pleasing to this world, pleasing to the devil. Only sometimes, and then only partly, in poetry, in the language of art, does it flare up in its primordial purity and power, in its original divine meaning. For good, like any real word, is from God, and to hear it in its liturgical resonance and sense, to understand what it means, what it manifests at the beginning of the Eucharistic anaphora, it must be raised to God." It must be heard there, where it resounded for the first time as a certain primordial revelation. And God saw that it was good. Genesis 1.10 Here is this word in its initial resonance. Here it is as beginning itself. But how do we hear it? How do we understand and receive it? How do we explain it with the use of other words— if they are all secondary in relation to this primary word, themselves only receiving their meaning and power from it. Of course, culture, science, philosophy are all sufficiently literate, all know enough to formally define it. Something is good or right when it conforms to its nature, purpose, conception, when its form or fulfillment corresponds to its content or plan. Applied to the biblical text, consequently it appears as such. And God saw that what he had created corresponded to his conception and therefore was right and good. All true enough, all correct according to the correctness of the words used. But what impoverished words these are, as they are powerless to convey the main thing, the very goodness of the good, the revelation about the world, about life, about us ourselves, that this divine good bears and manifests in itself the fullness of joy, the rapture, through which it radiates and gives life. But where then are we to find, not the explanation, not the definition, but above all the very experience, the first-hand knowledge of this primordial, imperishable good? We find it, we hear and we receive this word where it resounded anew in all its power and fullness where it rang out as the human answer to the divine good lord it is good that we are here matthew 17:4 through this answer on the mount of transfiguration we witnessed forever for all time man's reception of the divine good as his life as his calling There, in that cloud of light that overshadowed him, man saw that it is good, and accepted, and confessed. And it is by this vision, this knowledge, this experience, that the Church, in her deepest depths, lives. In this experience is her beginning and fulfillment, as well as the beginning and fulfillment of everything within her. One can actually discuss the Church ad infinitum, one can endeavor to explain her, one can study ecclesiology, one can argue over apostolic succession, the canons and the principles of church structure, but without this experience, without this secret joy, without the orientation of everything to this it is good that we are here, all remain simply words about words. The Divine Liturgy, the continual ascent, the lifting up of the church to heaven, to the throne of glory, to the unfading light and joy of the kingdom of God, is the focus of this experience, simultaneously its source and presence, gift and fulfillment. Standing in the temple of thy glory we think we are in heaven. These words are not pious rhetoric, for they express the very essence the very purpose both of the Church and of her worship as above all precisely a liturgy, an action, in which the essence of what is taking place is simultaneously revealed and fulfilled. But in what is this essence, in what is the ultimate meaning of the divine liturgy, if not in the manifestation and the granting to us of this divine good? From where... If not from our Lord it is good for us to be here, comes its simultaneously otherworldly, heavenly and cosmic beauty that wholeness in which all—words, sounds, colors, time, space, movement, and the growth of all of them—is revealed, realized as the renewal of creation, as ours, as the ascent of the entire world on high— where Christ has raised and is eternally raising us, and therefore, if it is at all appropriate to speak here of causality, of when and how, then this causality, binding together the liturgy, making each of its parts precisely a part, a stage, and thus a condition and cause of further ascent, is contained in this good, through the knowledge and experience and partaking of which the Church lives. This divine good assembles the Church as the new creation, renewed by God. It transforms this gathering into entrance and ascent. It opens the mind to the hearing and reception of the Word of God. It includes our sacrifice, our offering in the one, unrepeatable and universal sacrifice of Christ. It fulfills the Church as the unity of faith and love. And finally... It brings us to that threshold we have now approached, to that truly chief part, in which all this movement and growth will find its completion and fulfillment at Christ's table in His kingdom. And therefore, unless we see the entire liturgy as the gift and fulfillment of this divine good, we will never know what is fulfilled in this chief part. We will not know what is accomplished in the Eucharist and in its summit, the transformation of the bread and wine with us, with the church, with the world, with all and through all. The words of the deacon also witness to this good, and call us to stand in it, as they now begin the chief, for everything is about to be fulfilled in it, part of the liturgy. 4. Three exclamations of the celebrant, and three short replies from the gathering, comprise an introductory dialogue by which the sacrament of the Anaphora begins. The first is the solemn blessing. It exists in every Eucharistic prayer, without exception, that has come down to us, although it comes in various formulas, from the simple, The Lord be with you, of the Roman and Alexandrian liturgies, to our Trinitarian formula, which is almost identical with the one we find in the Apostle Paul. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. 2 Corinthians thirteen thirteen. The meaning of this blessing is always and everywhere the same, the triumphant affirmation and confession that the Church is gathered in Christ, and in Him offers the Eucharist. And this means that there we are in such unity with Him that everything done by us is accomplished by Him, and everything accomplished by Him has been granted to us. It is precisely this that is emphasized by the irregularity of this blessing's Trinitarian formula. Its irregularity lies, of course, in its contrast to the formula that is always otherwise used, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Eucharistic blessing begins with Christ, with the bestowal of His grace, because in this moment of the liturgy the essence of the blessing lies not in the confession of the Most Holy Trinity in its eternal essence, but in the revelation, the testimony, one can even say the experience of it as knowledge of God, which is life eternal, John 17.3, as the reconciliation union and communion with him that has been granted and is eternally being granted to us as our salvation. This salvation is granted to us in Christ, the Son of God, who became the Son of Man, in whom we have peace with God, we have obtained access to this grace, Romans 5, 1 2 We have access in one spirit to the Father, Ephesians 2, 8. For we have one Mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2, five, who has said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, John 14.6. Christian faith begins with the encounter with Christ, with the reception of Him as the Son of God, who manifests the Father and His love to us. This acceptance of the Son... This union in Him with the Father is fulfilled as salvation, as the new life, as the kingdom of God in the communion of the Holy Spirit, which is the divine life itself, divine love itself, communion with God. And thus the Eucharist is also the sacrament of our access to God and knowledge of Him and union with Him. Being offered in the Son, it is offered to the Father. Being offered to the Father, it is fulfilled in the partaking of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, the Eucharist is the eternally living and life-creating source of the Church's knowledge of the Most Holy Trinity. This is not the abstract knowledge of dogmas, doctrine, that it unfortunately remains for so many of the faithful, but knowledge as a genuine recognition, as meeting, as experience, and thus as partaking of life eternal. 5. The next exclamation of the celebrant, Let us lift up our hearts, we find in no other service. It belongs entirely and exclusively to the divine liturgy. For this exclamation is not simply a call to a certain lofty disposition. In the light of all that has been said above, it is an affirmation that the Eucharist is accomplished not on earth but in heaven. But even when we were dead through our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him, and made us sit with him in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2 5 through 6. We already know that this ascent to heaven began with the very beginning of the liturgy, with our very entrance and assembly as the church, when our true life was hid with Christ in God. And need we demonstrate and explain that this heaven has nothing in common with that heaven that Boltman and his followers, with their condescending scientificity, debunk for the sake of demythologization and an explanation of it to contemporary man that would supposedly save Christianity, and of which St. John Chrysostom already said over fifteen hundred years ago, What is heaven to me? when I contemplate the master of heaven, when I myself become heaven. We can lift our hearts on high, because this on high, this heaven, is within us and among us, because it has been returned, restored to us as our real homeland of the heart's desire, to which we returned after an agonizing exile, for which we have always groaned with homesickness, and through the memory of which all creation lives, if we speak of the earthly, of ourselves, of the church in categories of ascent, then we speak of the heavenly, of God, of Christ, of the Holy Spirit in categories of descent. But we are saying the same thing. We speak of heaven on earth, of heaven as having transfigured the earth, and of the earth as having accepted heaven as the ultimate truth about itself. Heaven and earth will pass away, Mark thirteen thirty one. They will pass away in their opposition, in their rift from each other, and they will pass away because they shall be transformed into a new heaven and a new earth, Revelations 21.1, into the kingdom of God, in which God will be all in all, for this world it is as yet in the future, but in Christ it is already revealed, and in the church it is already anticipated." And the Eucharist raises and elevates us to this heavenly kingdom of God from on high, and in it the Eucharist is accomplished. But that is why the call, Let us lift up our hearts, also sounds like a solemn and ultimate warning. Let us beware that we do not remain on the earth, says St. John Chrysostom. We are able, we are free men to remain down below, and not here, not see, and not receive this difficult ascent. But if we remain on earth, we have no place in this heavenly Eucharist, and in that case our presence at its celebration becomes our condemnation. And when each of us, through the lips of the choir, answer, we lift them up unto the Lord, i.e., when we have turned our hearts on high to the Lord, a judgment is made on us. For one who, albeit fallen and sinful, has not turned his whole life to heaven, who does not always measure the earth next to heaven, cannot turn his heart on high for just this moment alone. Thus, when we hear this ultimate summons, let us ask ourselves, Are our hearts turned to the Lord? Is the ultimate treasure of our heart in God, in heaven? If so, then in spite of all our weakness, all our fallenness, we have been received into heaven. We behold now the light and the glory of the kingdom. If not The sacrament of the coming of the Lord to those who love him shall be for us the sacrament of the coming judgment. 6. Let us give thanks unto the Lord. It is meet and right. These words are the beginning of the traditional Hebrew prayer of thanksgiving. And the Lord doubtlessly uttered them when he began with this prayer, his own new thanksgiving, which was necessary to bring man to God and save the world. And likewise the apostles no doubt answered with the prescribed, It is meet and right. And each time the church celebrates the remembrance of this thanksgiving, she repeats after them and with them, It is meet and right. Salvation is complete. After the darkness of sin, the fall and death, A man once again offers to God the pure, sinless, free, and perfect thanksgiving. A man is returned to that place that God had prepared for him when he created the world. He stands at the heights before the throne of God. He stands in heaven before the face of God himself. And freely, in the fullness of love and knowledge, uniting in himself the whole world, all creation, he offers thanksgiving and in him the whole world affirms and acknowledges this thanksgiving to be meet and right. This man is Christ. He alone is without sin. He alone is man in all the fullness of his purpose, calling, and glory. He alone in himself restores the fallen image and raises it to God, and thus we now offer the thanksgiving of Christ, hear it, and take part in it, when the celebrant begins the Eucharistic prayer commanded to us by Christ, who has united us for all ages with God.